First Peter chapter two is where we'll be this evening. First Peter chapter two. <clears throat> Lord willing, we'll go ahead and finish the chapter um, tonight. But uh, we might not make it. There's a lot to see. So. First Peter two twenty one to twenty five, and just so you know, next week we won't be in First Peter. Uh, we still will be meeting though, um, and what we're going to do is uh, have a little refresh about what we want to accomplish at places like Onion Days and Orchard Days. In fact, uh, we're planning on even setting up the table up here, like we'll have it at those festivals, and just kind of walking through that, refreshing everybody on that. So. Plan on coming, it'd be good for you, even if you can't make it to those festivals. It's good to see what we got going on and think about it for next time. So, just wanted to let you know that, and the youth will be in here with us next week too. Not the little kids, but the teenagers, <laughs> okay? Well, let's look at verses 21 to 25 of First Peter chapter 2, and then I'll open with a prayer. First Peter 2, starting in verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose... Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin, and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this sweet text and for the truths that are found in it that affect us here and now. We ask that we would rightly understand what it is you have for us tonight, that we would honor you in our hearts, set you apart as Lord in our hearts, and that we would uh, just seek after Christ in all that we do, starting with our minds and uh, having that affect the way that we live, being renewed by the gospel, being renewed by your word, and seeing Christ's beautiful example for us uh, here tonight. Give us uh, just a sweet time of study, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, the first thing I want us to see is that Jesus suffered well. Uh, as you saw as we just ran over those verses, uh, we're talking a lot about the suffering of Christ and Jesus suffered well. He's our perfect example for suffering, and we'll see that uh, throughout the study this evening. But the first thing we need to see is what Peter is referencing and quoting. There are a couple of Old Testament passages he's referencing, but the one that you're probably most familiar with is Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53.9 is specifically quoted by Peter, which says, "...he had done no violence." nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. <laughs> he had done no violence, and there was no deceit found in his mouth. And I want us to see that in the Gospels tonight. Um, turn over to Matthew 27, would you? Matthew chapter 27. Keep a finger in 1 Peter 2, but pull up Matthew 27. And I want us to see how each one of these elements that Peter brings up is reflected in the Gospel accounts themselves. Peter brings up the, the idea of sinning, being deceitful, reviling, uttering threats, and trusting the Father. These are five different elements brought up about Christ, and it's no to some of them and yes to one of them. Uh, but if <clears throat> in our text tonight it says that Christ committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth, he, though he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So the first thing to see, of course, is that he committed no sin. Um, and we, we're going to talk about this more later in the lesson. But uh, it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He became sin, who can finish the verse? He became sin who knew no sin. All right. <clears throat> That's right. He became sin who knew no sin. And he did that on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So, when it comes to sin, 
Of course, Jesus didn't have any of that, right? <laughs> you could put a big red X when it comes to Jesus' life and, and even in his suffering, he never sinned. But it also goes on to say more specifically that there was no deceit found in Jesus' mouth. So if you're in Matthew 27, look at verse 11 with me. Not only did Jesus not sin, but more specifically, there was no deceit found in his mouth. Who can read Matthew 27, 11 through 14? Logan, go ahead. All right. So I want you to see here that Jesus had opportunity to be deceitful, didn't he? In fact, put yourself in that position, and you might be extremely tempted to be deceitful. But here it is. He's being questioned. He's asked, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, it is as you say. And then here a couple different times in verse 12 and in verse 14, it says, Jesus didn't even say anything. He didn't answer them. He had his accusers there. And he didn't say anything. No deceit found in his mouth. So when it comes to deceit, did Jesus have any deceit? Well, of course, no. I mean, saying he had no sin kind of covers <laughs> the other ones, but uh, we'll just go through it one by one, just as Peter did. So he committed no sin, and there was no deceit found in his mouth. And it says, even though he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. Matthew 27, drop down to verse 27. Matthew 27, verse 27. And would someone read 27 to 31? Okay. Right. Being reviled, but he did not revile in return, did he? There they were, <clears throat> the Lord of the universe, they were reviling, and yet Jesus was found not reviling, not at all. Pretty amazing. Fourthly, Peter reminds us that Jesus uttered no threats. Look down at verse 38, Matthew 27, verse 38. Would someone read uh, 38 to 44? Matthew 27, 38 to 44. Who's got that? Matthew 27, 38 to 44. Keep 44. <laughs> wow, if you, if you had all the power in the universe, would you be tempted to utter some threats in that moment? <laughs> like, keep going and I'll burn you to a crisp, boys. Well, <laughs> well, he uttered no threats. He uttered no threats. <clears throat> but it does say there in verse 43, and this is, of course, those who are mocking him, he trusts in God, is what they said. Hmm. Uh, yeah, he did trust in God. Let's go down to verse 43. Would someone read 45 to 50? Okay. All right, so you guys uh, might remember in John's gospel, uh, when Jesus died, he cried out one final thing. What was it? It is finished, good. And in Luke's gospel, uh, he said with one of his final breaths, into your hands I commit my spirit, he prayed. And so um, even on the cross in agony in an hour of darkness, he was still found trusting the Father, wasn't he? So the first four things that Peter lists are all negative. He was no sin, no deceit, no reviling, no threats. But the one positive, he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. Uh, that's the model of obedience that we're going to continue to dwell on throughout the rest of the lesson. That's what Jesus did, of course, through his whole life. But we see it especially in his suffering, and that's Peter's point in the text tonight. Uh, but I thought... You know, it's interesting to compare that to Peter himself, the one who's writing the letter, because he's infamous for 
not doing the things he was supposed to do. And uh, go back just one chapter, Matthew 26, the end of that chapter, it's a very long chapter, go down to the end, starting in verse 69, and of course you know this story, the rooster crowing. Let's go ahead and read that, 69 to the end, 75, who can read those verses for us? Who's got it? Logan again. So did Peter, in this, just take this instance, did he have sin? <laughs> yes, okay, all right. Deceit? <laughs> yeah, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. How about reviling and threats? I'm going to count it. <laughs> okay. Now, it says that in the New American Standard, it says in 74, he began to curse and swear. I think that counts as enough for reviling and threatening. Uh, but we can definitely say, was he trusting the Father? No. He wasn't trusting the one who judges righteously as Jesus did. And so it's very interesting as you think just in this final moment toward the end of the uh, Gospels as they're written, leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, you have this example that Peter talks about in his letter in 1 Peter 2, just after Peter lived out kind of the inverse of that with his lying in deception about being one of Jesus' disciples. Now, of course, we can't beat up on Peter because who are we to do that? Uh, but <clears throat> it is interesting that God would take someone like that and then use him to write an inspired letter, a book of Scripture, to teach us such amazing things. Uh, God is so kind and patient and gracious, isn't he? But when we look at what Jesus did here... <clears throat> having no sin, having no deceit, no reviling, no threats, but keeps entrusting himself to the Father. This can be called, in uh, theology, this is what's called the active obedience of Christ. The active obedience of Christ. There's active and passive obedience. He's, he was always obedient to the Father and everything, of course. But this is the active side of his obedience, which is everything he did completely, thoroughly, utterly pleased the Father. Right? Every single thing from the moment he was born through the moment that he breathed his last, that earthly life, all of it, was pleasing to God. It was righteous. There was not one inkling, not one fraction of a percentage of sin at all. It was only perfect always. And this is called the active obedience of Christ. And Peter has us walk right into the passive obedience of Christ. Go back over to 1 Peter chapter 2. And look at verse 24 with me. This is the flip side of that. You've got him living his life in perfect submission. And then in verse 24, dying in perfect submission. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. So again, this is what's called the passive obedience in that he died the death we deserved in our place. He lived the life actively that we couldn't live. And then he died the death passively because it was the Father's good pleasure to crush him, right? We understand that element of this wasn't an accident. This was the plan and design of God. God was actively involved in this. And Jesus, in our place, died the death that we deserved. And so active obedience lived the life. Passive obedience died the death. Uh, that's theologically a way that you can think through that. And that's what Peter is uh, putting on our minds here is that he was a substitute in our place for our sins. But also, he was a substitute in, in our lives, living the life that we couldn't live. So it's a, it's a both and thing. Okay? Thoughts or questions on that? We just covered a bunch of scripture, but what do you got before I move on to the next thing? Should we beat up on Peter? <laughs> no, we shouldn't do that to poor Peter. He gets beat up too much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Yep, yep, there are some guys mentioned in Scripture, and all we have are bad things. At least Peter has some, you know, great things to offset. Some guys just get mentioned who are probably in heaven, and all they did was just stupid stuff. Like, well, that's a bummer for you, but it's what you deserved, I guess. <laughs> and then the guys who get out, uh, like Daniel and Joseph and uh, Elijah, those guys, you never hear a bad thing about them. It's like, well, that's not fair, because they messed up too, so... Anyway, okay, well, I'm glad it's making sense. I hope it's making sense. If it's not making sense, you should ask a question, but okay. Well, let's dwell on verse 24 for a while. Um, he bore our sins in his body on the cross. The elements of how he took care of our sin problem and the way he bore our sins. The first thing we notice is that prepositional phrase, in his body, which is just an amazing thought. He bore our sins in his body. And this is the idea that we get from the Old Testament law that that which is on a, uh, on a tree is cursed. That which is hanged on a, on a tree is cursed. Uh, we see this in Galatians 3, and we'll turn there here in a moment. But he was made a curse for us as a sacrifice. Our sin debt was imputed to his account. So just as his righteousness is imputed to our account, he lived a perfect life, and that life gets imputed to us by faith. So our evil, our rebellion, all of our sin, every time we've done anything wrong, gets imputed to his account. Um, Now, it's important to make a distinction here that Christ was never considered sinful in his personhood, was he? Uh, We have to maintain this distinction. Christ as a person, Jesus Christ is a person, and he was never reckoned as sinful. He maintained his divinity, his deity, all throughout uh, his dying on the cross. Because if he, would have had, if he would have become sinful in his personhood at all, he would have ceased to be God. Because God can't be in the presence of sin, right? Uh, he can't look on sin. Um, he can't have it on his account. So he was never judged as sinful in his personhood. He was always, of course, God. Uh, but he was counted as sinful in our stead. So you think back to um, the verse I brought up at the beginning, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he became sin who knew no sin. Now that's just a crazy start to a sentence. (laughs) He became sin who knew no sin. So he was not a sinful person in any way. Yet he was reckoned as a curse for us and received the punishment due to us because of our sin. Now, of course, there's great mystery in all that, and we're never going to be able to articulate that in a perfect sense because uh, this is just so high and amazing above us. I mean, this is God's program. We can't fully grasp it all. But he was counted as a curse in our stead, and his deity always remained intact. So let's turn to that Galatians 3 passage. Just turn back a little bit. Galatians 3.10. Let's see how Scripture articulates this, because Scripture will do a perfect job articulating it. Galatians 3, and I'll I'll read verses 10 to 14. Galatians chapter 3, starting at verse 10. It says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. Verse 12, However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So the verse I want us to really focus on is verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, it says. He became a curse on our behalf because 
We deserved cursing. Why did we deserve cursing, according to this passage? There you go. Yeah, I mean, look up again at verse uh, 10. It says, this is quoting Deuteronomy 27, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by just particular certain things written in the book of the law. (laughs) No, it says all things. So if you are guilty of breaking one aspect of the law, then you have not kept the whole law, and then you're cursed. And who fits into that category but every single human being who's ever lived, right? So we deserved, obviously, to be cursed by God. We deserve death. We deserve the punishment that comes from that. But Christ became a curse in our place. He received death in our place that we might be redeemed from the curse of the law. Isn't that beautiful? And... um, really encouraging, (laughs) that we're free from the law, we're released from the law, that God's demands are perfectly satisfied. It is good, because if you ever try to live by a law, uh, you don't do a very good job, and you've been redeemed from the curse of the law. Okay, thoughts on that point? Okay. Okay. Good. You all thought through this already on your way here tonight. That's great. <laughs> and Peter says not only, back in 1 Peter 2, not only <clears throat> was he in our place on the cross, but through that event, the end of verse 24, through Christ dying in our place, we are healed. We are healed. Now, there are some people, of course, who uh, will take this verse and try to talk about physical healing through it health and wellness, is that context at all in this letter? No. Okay. Because Peter's talking to people who are suffering, right? And he's not telling them, oh, because Jesus did that, now you're totally free and happy and healthy and comfortable. That's the exact opposite of the context of Peter's letter. So, uh, boy, to make that into physical healing is just crazy. This is one of the main places that health and wealth preachers will go because they teach that when Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't just for our sins, but he bore our sicknesses too. Therefore, in the cross, we have physical healing alongside spiritual healing. And if you're ever um, looking at the doctrinal statement of a church for whatever reason, a lot of times they'll put that in their doctrinal statement. So, (laughs) hope that wasn't Andy. Um, you can look at the doctrinal statement for a church, and you can go through point by point, and at each point, depending on what movement they're associated with, there will be certain things to look for. But if you think maybe they're charismatic, maybe they're a health and wealth type, just go down and see what they say about the atonement, and that will be one of the indicators, not the only one. But see if it says anything about our physical ailments in there. And if it does, they're twisting Scripture. There's just nowhere in Scripture that teaches Jesus died so that you would be protected from cancer, or that you'd be protected from the flu or whatever. We, in our hermeneutic Sunday school class, there was a clip that we showed a few weeks ago. Uh, it was Kenneth Copeland's wife. You guys know Ken, Kenneth Copeland, crazy-eyed guy. His eyes are really crazy. Uh, his wife was preaching, because, you know, that's what they do too, and uh, she, said, uh, she said, oh, I don't need to get the flu shot. Jesus was my flu shot. I've, Jesus, I've been inoculated by the cross. All right, well, I think she was wearing glasses when she said that too, which is always ironic. I'm like, wait a second, that's not right. <clears throat> so, he was in our place for our sins. In his body, he bore our sins. By them, we are healed. But let's also dwell on the location. It says, Toward the start of verse 24, it was on the cross. On the cross is where he was. This is the place where he bore our sins. Um, Sacrifices, of course, in God's system, sacrifices had to die. You couldn't just, you know, prick a sacrifice and just do a little bit of bloodletting and a little blood drips on the ground and that's it. Sacrifices had to die. There was, uh, you know, when you would kill a goat or a bull or whatever, there would be lots of blood. And uh, Jesus had to die, and he did so through a method of execution. It was on the cross, um, a method of execution in that time. Uh, And if you go to chapter 3 of 1 Peter, just turn over a page or two, chapter 3, verse 18, 
we get a little more of Peter's insight on this, where he says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, you see that substitution aspect again, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So twice in that verse, Peter emphasizes the death aspect. He was on the cross, dying in our place for our sins, not just uh, bleeding, not that there's anything magical about the blood itself, but he was dying in our place. Um, and again, that's that passive obedience aspect. He died the death that we deserve, the just for the unjust. The one just man for all the unjust people. And it says in verse 24 that there was a purpose in this, not just for us to be healed, but he died for us on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We were redeemed for that purpose, to die to sin and to live to righteousness. His active obedience, so going back to this really fancy chart here, uh, he, his active obedience, he committed no sin, no deceit in his mouth, he didn't revile in return, he uttered no threats. That's a model for us in living for God, isn't it? And how we live out our righteousness. So Peter, after articulating how Jesus suffered and how he suffered well, he says, and that's why you were redeemed, was so that you would follow in his footsteps and model that same righteousness for the glory of God, to live a life pleasing to God. And Jesus' example of the way he lived is an encouragement to us, as, of course, we initially believe in the gospel and are saved, recognizing that it is his obedience that saves us, not our own obedience. And then it's also an encouragement to us as we live through this life and we flip back to the Gospels and we see how Jesus lived. Just looking at Matthew 27 tonight, perhaps it's been a while for some of you since you've been in those chapters, and isn't that encouraging to see how Jesus stood there in our place the whole time on trial? We should have been on trial and we should have been commissioned to death. He was on trial and lived perfectly and he got death so that we wouldn't, so that we could live. So Jesus' example is an encouragement in both ways, as our initial, in our initial faith and also as we continue to live for Him. So now any other thoughts or questions on what Peter's saying here in these verses? Yeah, I think it was C.S. Lewis that coined that phrase. Yeah, mm-hmm. he gets our sin and we get his righteousness. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Romans 5, how Jesus is um, the second Adam, how the first Adam earned for us death, and the second Adam, the final Adam, earns for us life. First Adam gives us condemnation, and Jesus, the second Adam, brings us justification. It's an amazing story that God's woven together here, isn't it? And you get to be a part of it. How cool is that? Any other thoughts or questions? I was hoping we would have more. I don't have a lot of lesson left. <laughs> Bring up a really deep subject, Joseph. Go ahead. <laughs> That's somewhat on track. Uh, yeah, on point. I think it I, I kind of is because, like you mentioned, like the blood. Yeah. Yeah, so, <clears throat> right, yeah, so there, um, there are two ways to, uh, <laughs> to think about it. Yeah, one, of course, is literal. The other is simile. So simile is a uh, figure of speech that uses like or as. Uh, you could say um, that, uh, boy, what's a good simile, Melissa? One's not coming to mind. Random simile. You're my random simile generator. <laughs> Okay, yes. Yeah, there you go. So it's obviously a uh, not literal, not saying, we took the measurements, and it's the exact measurements of the average size of a house, you know, in a situation like that. You're just saying like something. You're comparing as a figure of speech. I do think that's what Luke is doing. Um, there's only one gospel that mentions it. Um, I think it's Luke. Maybe it's Matthew. I think it's Luke. 
there's just the one, and I, I do think it's a simile, a lot like in Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3, where it says, the Holy Spirit descended upon him as a dove. Does that mean God turned into a bird? I don't think so. <laughs> I think it's making a comparison of the way a dove lands is how the Holy Spirit, whatever they saw, however that looked, is how the Spirit landed on the sun. So I think that's what Matthew was doing there. And the sweat, like drops of blood, I believe it has to do with the amount of sweat that was coming out. Obviously, when someone's bleeding, especially around the head, there's a lot pouring out. So there was just so much sweat because of the anxiety. There is a condition, I believe, that's extremely rare where someone can actually have blood come out of their sweat glands. Uh, Potentially, that's the case. Uh, However, all of that aside, that's not where he paid for our sins anyway. So uh, bottom line is, even if it was actual blood that came out of his sweat sweat glands, he didn't pay for our sins in Gethsemane. Right. And it's, in 1 Peter 2.24 is a great verse. I mean, this is, this is one of our Onion Days verses, maybe five or six years ago. We put it on our shirt and everything. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Because that's a big point around here, right? Um, when Latter-day Saints teach that his atonement started in the garden, and that's where he paid for sins, he just happened to die on a cross, and then he rose again. And they account that whole series as the atonement. The last event, the resurrection, is, you know, he lives, and that's great. The first event is where he paid for our sins, and then the middle event, the cross, is just really, especially in Utah, it's been really pushed down like, yeah, we don't want to talk about it. Like people don't, like you're wearing a cross, and traditionally in Utah, Mormons don't wear crosses, right? Uh, Though now that's starting to change quite a bit. I think you're going to see more and more Latter-day Saints wearing crosses. I think it's becoming more fashionable. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Yes. You've got you have one gospel saying he his sweat was like drops of blood, and that event isn't mentioned in the other three gospels. It's not mentioned in any other New Testament uh, letter. And then you have the cross that's mentioned in all four gospels. It's mentioned everywhere, and that's just really pushed down. So, deception, Rex. Right, yeah. No. It is? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that very well could be. Is You know, he, he's more apt to describe something physical with the body. Yeah, yep. That's it. And yeah, because the thing is, I mean, even if it was actual blood coming out of his sweat glands, to me it's like, okay, that's amazing, but that's still not where he paid for sins, right? Uh, because nothing instructs us in that at all in the New Testament. So, yeah. Good. Let's bring up some other controversial topics. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, Scripture says he was uh, beaten beyond recognition. That's pretty wild. Melissa? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And if you would have been there to be healed by Jesus, then you could say, yeah, that's what that verse is talking about. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and what's, what's really interesting about Isaiah 53 is uh, it comes up a few times in the New Testament. You know, we, we think of Isaiah 53 as the fifth gospel, right? That you, you can go read Isaiah 53 and see so clearly about Jesus and how he's going to die for us. Yet, 1 Peter 2 is really the only place that directly links Isaiah 53 with Jesus's death on the cross for us. The only other place that comes close is um, Acts chapter 8 with the Ethiopian eunuch, 
where, remember, he was sitting there reading Isaiah 53? And he, he said to Philip, please tell me of whom does this prophet say this, of himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from the Scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And they went along the road, and they came to some water, and then got baptized. And that's all it says. He actually doesn't say anything about Jesus' death there that is recorded in Scripture. Obviously, explaining it to him, he did. But um, 1 Peter 2 is by far the most explicit passage in taking Isaiah 53 and applying it to the death of Jesus in our place. And so uh, I thought that was pretty interesting. I discovered that in my preparation. Okay, well, let's um, look at 21 and 25, these two verses that sandwich the rest of the passage that we've already looked at. 21, again, starts out by saying, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. And then verse 25, For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Anybody else have a different word for guardian in verse 25? Just curious. Shepherd and guardian? Overseer? Bishop? Is that what translation? Okay. Yeah, it's the word episkopos, which is the word that we see in like 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Elders are overseers. It's the same word. So I thought that was kind of cool. Like a pastor of our souls, Jesus ultimately is. Um, so Jesus' character in suffering is an example for us we see in verses 21 and 25. 21 is pretty strong when it says, for this purpose you have been called. That's the way the passage starts off. Why has God called you? Well, here's the big purpose, Peter is saying. And it finds its fulfillment there at the end of verse 24, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And of course, that's following in Jesus' footsteps. It's his example. And Jesus' suffering isn't just an example for us when we suffer, but it's an example for us at all times, isn't it? Uh, we don't wait until we suffer and then think, okay, uh, how can I be Christ-like now? <laughs> it's, of course, for our whole life, it applies at all times, not just when we're suffering. And when you think about where this lands, where this passage lands in Peter's letter, who was he talking to right before this passage? Who was Peter addressing? Yeah, slaves, servants. And then who's he addressing next? Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Wives. All right. So, let's see. Women that have husbands present, don't say anything about, you know, your husband that you have to submit to. But uh, uh, here, Peter is saying, you know, especially to slaves, especially to wives, that they've been called for this purpose to follow in Jesus' footsteps, especially in their suffering. Because you have to obviously recognize with slaves, not all of them had good masters, right? We talked about that last week. Of course, there are some situations where masters were good, but there are obviously lots of situations where masters were harsh and unreasonable. And they were called to do what with those masters? To obey, to submit. Right. What about the women that he writes to in chapter 3? You think... They all have great husbands? <laughs> well, no. I mean, look at verse 1. He says, You wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives. So, especially encouraging those two groups of people, servants and wives, to suffer well even in their situations that may be particularly difficult and harsh. Um, and then also, not to leave men out. If you look at chapter 3, verse 7, husbands also get some uh, instruction, but it's just one verse. <laughs> but, uh, and it's hard to see maybe how the suffering element might play into that, but we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. So, um, Peter is especially encouraging slaves and wives to consider how they are to follow in Jesus' example as they might be suffering in their situations. And trusting God, of course, while you're suffering, trusting God is a critical element of it all, isn't it? Any of you who have suffered as a Christian, you know that it would be so much more difficult to go through that suffering if you didn't have the Lord to trust, if you were just trusting in yourself. And as you think through these things that Jesus didn't have, sin, 
he did have, Peter lists for us, this element of trusting the Father and trusting himself, again, this is the end of verse 23, and trusting himself to him who judges righteously. Look back at chapter 1, verse 17, 1 Peter 1, 17. He said, if you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay on earth. And fear is an element that's directly tied with submission throughout Peter's letter. To the slaves, they were to fear their masters. We just, again, looked at that last week. As they submitted, they were to do so with reverence. Wives are going to be encouraged as they submit to their husbands. They are to do so in reverence. Those elements are tied together, and they can do that. We can all do that because we're trusting the one who judges impartially. So we know that no matter what we're going through, even if we're going through a really particularly difficult thing where we're just in anguish, we can look to God knowing He's going to right all wrongs in the end, isn't He? He's going to straighten all this out. That the one who's harming us, the one who's oppressing us, or whatever the case may be, that one is going to be dealt with by God one way or another. If that person doesn't get redeemed in this life and you know, have his life turned around, um, he's going to be judged by God and going to receive what is due. So this is a really important element. In Romans 12, Paul encourages us not to take our own revenge, but what does it say? Don't take your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God. <laughs> don't, don't seek your own revenge, but leave room for God's wrath, because as it says, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord, right? So we aren't to go out seeking our own revenge, but look to the one who judges impartially. One of my favorite verses in 1 Corinthians that I've had the pleasure to preach on has been chapter 4, verse 5, where Paul encourages us, don't go on judging before the time, but wait for the Son to return who will disclose the motives of men's hearts and will give to each one as it is due. So we don't get ahead of God on this stuff, do we? But in the middle of our suffering and oppression, remember these are uh, persecuted Christians, in the middle of all that, we look to God because He's the righteous judge, just as Jesus did, kept entrusting Himself to the Father. And I think, too, of what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, um, where, of course, he was talking about his pedigree, his background, and he counted all his loss. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But he said that... Um, he wanted to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of what? Do you remember? His sufferings. He wanted to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. That's an amazing goal to have. That's pretty countercultural, isn't it? What do you want to do in life? I want to know the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Wow. Wow. And uh, Peter ends this section by pointing to Jesus as our shepherd and the overseer of our souls, which is our source of comfort in this life. As we go through different hardships, we always can look to Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We were like sheep wandering off, but He has brought us near. He's the shepherd and guardian of our souls. Joseph. Yeah, he, well, um, in, boy, I'm not going to think of the verse references off the top of my head, but uh, it says a couple different times in Scripture that God doesn't show favoritism. He shows no partiality. And so when it comes to judging people, he doesn't say, oh, oh, you were a king. You must have been in a lot of stressful situations. I can understand why you would have lied. <laughs> or that was a rough week. Yeah, I can understand why you would have cheated on your wife. I get it. Yeah, you know, nothing like that. Uh, he doesn't say, oh, you're from this nation. Then you're going to get this type of treatment and judgment, and this nation is going to get really harsh treatment. It's, he judges impartially. Uh, all those things that we look at, and we're tempted to be partial toward people, it's not so with God. So. Yeah, there you go. Yep, yep good question.
Any other questions? Yes, Dory. Mm -hmm. Elaborate. Okay, I don't know if I've if I'm clicking with what what you've heard it as before. Can you describe to me the way you've heard it used before? Oh, I see. So, like, even going into chapter three, be submissive to your own husbands. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he doesn't say be an idiot. <laughs> so <laughs> that's uh, the first thing to observe, right? Um, but it is difficult because. Um, yeah, I mean, okay, so if someone came to uh, this church who was a woman who was obviously being physically abused, we would, step number one is always physical, let's get physical safety in line, okay? That's step number one. Everything else is going to be unique to that situation. We'll have to figure it all out as we go. But step number one is always, let's get you safe, which obviously means not with him if he's the one who's doing it. And then we'll, again, figure everything else out as we go. Um, but where it can get really tricky is abuse isn't only physical, right? Uh, abuse can be emotional. Abuse can be mental. I mean, abuse can be all, just all, all kinds of things. And <laughs> abuse can be really unique to the person experiencing it. Everybody has different capacities for what they can handle. Everybody has different personality. And... Uh, People can jump too quickly to saying, I'm being abused. This happens, I mean, you could see that in a, a workplace situation. Uh, <laughs> there was a, a guy that I knew in college who um, was upset with his work. He was working at a call center or something, his office job with cubicles. He was near the door uh, where people would step outside and smoke. And he couldn't handle the cigarette smoke. Is that an oppressive employer? No, uh, the guy needs to grow up, right? Um, or figure it out. Hey, be an adult, figure it out. Um, that is not oppression from an employer. But in his mind, in a lot of ways, it was. So that's the kind of thing where, you know, in a husband and wife situation, the, you can get really awkward in a hurry where it's like, well, okay, you're saying you're being abused, but I'm not really seeing that. I mean, maybe things aren't the way they're supposed to be, but that's every marriage, right? And it's to a, maybe a greater or lesser degree than others. But, um, but when it comes to something that's clearly over the line, like you were giving the example of a woman who's being abused, yeah, step one isn't say, well, Scripture says you need to live with them and take the beating. That's, that's not what we, what we would say. Uh, scripture would encourage us to care for her physically and make sure she's safe. Now, that would open a can of worms. That'll take up the rest of our time if we want it to. <laughs> but uh, uh, any other thoughts or questions? <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. What's the, is she saved or unsaved? Is he saved or unsaved? Are they members of our church or another church? There are just a million variables. Yeah, Melissa. because you were smoking outside the door and impressing me. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, yeah, I mean, you look through... Uh, <laughs> yeah, you, you look at God's heart for the orphan and the widow and the alien throughout the Hebrew Scriptures especially. Israel's always reminded of God has a heart to them. He's near to them. And so those who are most oppressed in society, we should have a heart for too. Yep. To look to care for them. Sometimes it's really hard because you care for them and care for them and care for them, and they don't ever seem to care. 
<laughs> and that's tough, but we're called to agape love them no matter what. So, and I know many of you have been good examples in doing that, dealing with very difficult people. So, anything else? Wow. Okay. Well, that's all I had. I'm not prepared to discuss chapter 3. <laughs> I'm not going to attempt to on the fly. Um, sermon series, Meat Offered to Idols. Do you guys have any feedback for me on that? We're going to finish that up this Sunday. That's been an interesting study for me. Uh, I've learned quite a bit, but I'd be, I know we're totally switching gears, but we have a few minutes left. Um, I would welcome any kind of feedback that you have, even in this public setting. If you would, you were willing to ask any questions or provide any encouragement or conviction? <laughs> so, okay, I have to go look now. In verse, verse which verse? Yeah, right. Food's, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, chapter chapter eight is that what you're talking about? Where he was talking about don't cause your brother to eating. You can eat, but yeah, 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 right. So basically, the way to think about it, the way I understand it, and there is a lot of disagreement among commentators on this, especially the passage we're looking at this Sunday. But the the animal that was sacrificed to an idol and that meat that's there, when it's in the temple on the altar as a part of a pagan worship sacrifice, that location, big red X not allowed, don't take part in it. Now, when the meat moves outside of that pagan worship ceremony and it goes somewhere else, now it becomes a matter of conscience. So, in chapter 8, he says, dining in an idol's temple, which I interpret as in the precinct of the temple, outside of the ceremony. Obviously, Christians shouldn't be in the ceremony. But outside of that ceremony, somewhere near the temple, apparently they would have feasting times where you could go and dine, and that was a conscience issue. And he's encouraging them, look, if you're going to do that and someone sees you doing it and that person um, doesn't have the knowledge that you have, you could really cause that person to stumble. So be careful. And then moving even farther away from the pagan temple, the meat market, once it's there, just buy it and don't even ask any questions. Just pick it up and buy it. And now this Sunday, there's one last scenario where it's your unbelieving neighbor invites you over for dinner and throws down some beef on the plate. Do you ask where it came from, or do you just eat it? You don't? Don't ask questions. But then, there's a fellow believer there at the dinner, and he says, hey, that was offered to an idol. Now what do you do? He says, don't eat it. Wow. So, pretty interesting, huh? <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And really what happens in this last scenario we're going to look at this Sunday is you're at the unbelieving person's house. The unbeliever's the host. Eat the food. I'm your host. I want to serve you. Your fellow Christian says, we shouldn't be eating that. That's been offered to an idol. Paul says, do you please the Christian or do you please the unbelieving host? He says, pick the Christian. Accommodate to your believing brother or sister and make the host upset. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, the, uh, the title for that section in my notes this week is An Awkward Dinner. So, <laughs> Melissa. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, yeah, so that brings up another aspect of all this, which is our communication in the church. <laughs> because here's what typically happens. People bottle it up, bottle it up, they're offended, they don't want to say anything, and then eventually one day they either just leave or they explode on somebody. Um, 
So uh, most often people just leave. And then you're left wondering, like, what happened? And that shouldn't be that way. Love demands that we communicate to one another, uh, meaning the, those who are offended, or Scripture would say the weaker brother, should be communicating. Okay? Now, we're going to talk about this Sunday, too, the limits of being a weaker brother. Because you can't be a weaker brother that just rolls in somewhere and just calls all the shots and say, everybody bow to me, right? Uh, that's not cool, and we'll talk about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've got a pretty... Uh... <laughs> I need to go first at the potluck. I'm the weaker brother. Um, yeah, I've got a pretty spicy quote from R.C. Sproul on that uh, for Sunday's message. But, uh, but there are obviously certain things where if we're offended, we just probably should speak up at certain times. There are times. Or if we can't handle something, we just need to speak up. And we need to do that in love, understanding it is a freedom issue, that the other person isn't sinning by doing it. Um, but if it's something that really does bother us, we can't just bottle that up. Uh, this is also it's tied to Matthew 18. Jesus talked about the church discipline chapter. He, the way it's phrased is, if your brother offends you, go and talk to him. Boy, that verse has been lost on the church for a long time, huh? If your brother offends you, talk to him. That's what brothers and sisters do. We talk, okay? So you don't have to worry about that about me. If I've got a problem, we'll, we'll chat about it. Um, but if we just do it in love, everyone will be okay. If you go in saying, i got to win, and I'm going to go in with guns blazing, then someone's going to die. <laughs> so let's just, if we're all cool about it and humble, it'll be okay. Yes. Right. Yep. Yeah. If you're in the church looking to purposely tear someone down spiritually, then we've got bigger problems on our hands. But I don't think that's the case in our fellowship at all. Even though offense might be taking place, it's just we don't know it. Mark. Exactly. Yep. That's why you know Paul and the other authors, you know, focus a lot on God. Yep. Yes. Yep. Yeah, like the telephone game. Yeah. And that's, you know, another one of the reasons why when we introduce new members we do add that element of, do you commit to not gossiping? Um, I just think that's a helpful reminder for all of us every time we bring that up, because, yep, it'll kill the church. It, it's like gangrene. Yes, wife? Yeah. Well, you don't unless someone tells you. That's the thing. I mean, you just don't, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so here's the thing. As a Christian, you are not expected to read people's minds. You are not expected to read, read between the lines. You're not expected to read people's expressions. No, no one's putting that on you as like, oh, well, I furrowed my brow. Didn't you know that I was offended? Well, no. Yeah, people look at me that way all the time. <laughs> so, I mean, that's just a, an undue expectation. Really, if someone talks to you, that's what the Scriptures say, if someone comes and talks to you and then you reject that person, well, now, okay, now you're being, you know, unloving. We need to, what would love do here? And we talk it out. But unless someone communicates, you just won't know. You just won't. I think it can come up organically, too. You know, you're sitting there sitting dinner, and you're just having a conversation with somebody, and they say something to you that you, you often do, and you don't, they don't know that you do that. Yep. They say, this is something I struggle with, or whatever. And you think in your mind, Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, just it, if we're in each other's lives. <laughs> if we're not in each other's lives, you won't ever know. So. That's right, yeah. 
Are you speaking from experience, Jim? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, yep. Yep, absolutely. Those uh, foot-in-mouth moments. Yeah. But people do just can get really riled up, too. And then it's like, well, you seem like you don't want to work this out now. Now it seems like you're just permanently going to hate me, which that isn't good either. So if we all approach it with grace and love, if we're all looking for ways to humbly, sacrificially serve one another, everything will be okay. Once you get away from that mindset, everything falls apart. So, Okay, let's pray. Lord, we thank you again so much for tonight and for our time together. Please do help us to live with one another in peace, with humility, seeking to sacrificially love one another, and to encourage one another to live as Christ did as our example, how He suffered well in our behalf. God, give us great wisdom in this life. Help us to see things clearly that we would better serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.